Sharing and Zimmer. Hi there, this is Zuring and Simon. My name is Jens Zuring, and across from me sits Dominic Simon. He's a singer, musician, and psychology student here in northern Germany. Over here, he's more famous than me for being uh, in the semifinals of the German equivalent of America's Got Talent. Yes, and across from me sits Jens Zuring. Just like me, when he was 19, he used to play in a band, and he also started studying psychology. But then he got sentenced for murder and um, was in prison for 33 years. And just as I said, um, we have one thing in common, and that is that we both started, at least, to start studying psychology. And we haven't talked about that a lot in the last episodes. We talked a lot about things that might be affected by psychology, but I wanted to start by asking you how and why did you come into this field? Um, well, I think like a lot of teenagers, I was very insecure. And I was trying to develop my identity and find out who I was. And um, because of that, I started reading a bunch of books about psychology because I was a nerd. And I, yeah, that's how I tried to you know, learn my way into the new world that I was trying to uh, discover as a teenager through reading. Other people, you know, played sports or hung out with their friends. You know, I, um, I read, I read a lot. And, you know, psychology was something I really liked reading about. And um, I spent so much time on that subject um, that, yeah, I, I, I developed this wish um, to, to study psychology at college, except when I got there at, to the University of Virginia, I found out that personality psychology was not the focus of that psychology department at that time. In the early to mid-1980s, the focus of the psychology department at the University of Virginia was, in fact, psychobiology. And since I had won a scholarship, um, they took me to the, to the lab, and uh, it was kind of like a little bit of a, a privilege as a fr freshman they call them first-year students at UVA, as a freshman to be taken back there into the labs. And I saw hundreds and hundreds of cages with rats in them. And they told me that, um, yeah, you know, that's what I would be doing for the next four years. I would be dealing with these rats. And specifically, I was supposed to be um, drilling holes into the poor little skulls, inserting wires, turning on the electricity, and seeing which way the poor little creatures jumped. And that was just too damn gruesome for me. I did not want to do that. So um, after the first semester, I dropped psychology as a major. And then a few months later, uh, got the bright idea to study business and Mandarin Chinese. But um, yeah, if the psychology department at UVA, at the University of Virginia, had not had this focus on psychobiology, maybe I would have stayed um, in, in that department and and followed up and um, maybe even gotten a degree there. Who knows? Mm. Anyway, then I went to prison and I spent 33 years there and had a lot of time to read. And because I wanted to understand how my life had gone wrong and what the heck was going on in Elizabeth Hasem's brain, I read a lot of psychology books in prison. And then I got out. And um, um, after a couple of years, so many people were asking me about 
how did I survive in prison without being broken, without emerging as a complete train wreck? Um, you know, could I explain to them how I managed to do that? Um, I kind of slid into uh, this whole coaching field. Um, I did this so often, people were asking me this so frequently, that I got the idea, hey, maybe I can earn a living from this um, by actually charging people um, <laughs> to talk about how did I survive in prison and how can the principles that I developed, the strategies that I developed in prison, help other people deal with the crises and difficulties in their life. And I've been doing that for a couple of years now in Germany. And um, it's really funny, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of idea I had of psychology in the late 1980s that I would be sitting in an office somewhere helping people, you know, improve their life situations um, is now, in a completely different context in Germany, coming true. So it's, it's a great big circle, and I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful I've got this opportunity now in Germany to work as a coach. And after the publication of the Netflix series, I've now gotten my first couple of American clients, mm. and I'm really happy about that. So, yeah, I, I think it's actually cool that with a long, long pause, you were able to in some way do what you wanted to do in the first place um, without mm. the rats. Um, It's also funny because I think every university and also every probably time period has its own um, focus on psychology. So, for example, my university here in Kiel is a lot about statistics, a lot about math. And um, I don't think that I would have enjoyed... Um, working with rats? <laughs> working with rats and drilling holes in their brain and um, on trying to understand it. But it's, yeah, in, in, in that decade it was quite quite a big field and it even though it's 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 a lot of um pain for the mice um and the rats um you probably got something out of it you probably understood the brain better in some ways so it's a very um ethical uh yeah it is an ethically difficult issue and i i i I'm, as somebody who now has his own pet um, which of course was not possible in prison, but is possible for me now out here. Um, you know, I, I, animal welfare is something that's actually important to me. Um, but the necessity, and I think it is a necessity, of conducting at, um, animal experiments has to be handled very, very carefully. Yeah. Um, I do not know whether the experiments that were possible in the 1980s would still even be possible today and whether they should be, right? Um, but that some experiments are necessary, um, I think, is without question. I, as I said, I spent a lot of time in prison reading about psychology because it's a subject that really fascinated me, and I felt that I needed to learn more in order to understand my life and uh, what had gone wrong in my life. And I did, in fact, then end up reading a lot about brain science, mm. psychobiology, And discovered while I was in prison that I actually found it fascinating. And, um, you know, I, I, I wish now, looking back, that I could have been part of that whole development. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the major regrets that I have. Um, if somebody back then, in the fall of 1984, had maybe taken me by the hand and shown me where the movement in that science was going, mm. then perhaps I would have stayed with psychology and specifically psychobiology 
And um, yeah, it's something, it's a regret I have. That's, that, that was a possible future, which looking back would have been really interesting to me. But what you just said about studying statistics a lot, at, uh, you said at the University of Kiel, which is uh, a bit north from where I am. Um, I'm in northern Germany, but I'm not quite as far north as, as Dominic. Um, you know, statistics, wow, it's, uh, um, that's about as dry as it can get. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I respect you for sticking with it. Um, yeah, more power to you, Dominic, um, <laughs> more power to you. But you, you have also been doing some, uh, in, in your part-time job uh, next, next to the university, you've been doing, uh, I, I believe some therapeutic internship work. Yeah. So, um, I, I was able to, um, have a look, um, into, um, uh, into some facilities and I was able to um, not be part of a therapy session mm. but but I was the one who scheduled um, the therapy sessions um, spe specifically the first ones um, so I had a lot of um, contact with um, with the patients and um, I also um, am and was able to um, listen to what the psychologists um say to each other about the patients and how they try to um, help them. And this was something that's val valuable for me because um, I probably learned a lot more out of that than from most of my um, lectures um, at uni because it's something very different to hear it in theory and to see it when it's actually happening. It's like two very different parts and... Um, I think you always have to keep in mind that you can have these concepts and you can have these theories, but at the end there's a human being in front of you with very complex problems and situations and it's not easy to help them and to um, to give them some some support and some advice, but you have to learn it and it's something that's very rare to be a very good psychologist and probably a therapist, I think. Yeah, that's it's interesting what you just said. The the difference between what you're learning in a in a in a in a classroom at the university and then the way that is actually applied in a facility with actual real human beings with patients, um, because that's that's you know that that's kind of in it of course a different context. I do not provide therapy as a coach. Um, in the areas of resilience and toxic relationships, but it's it's there's a, there's a parallel there. Um, you know, there are the famous seven pillars of resilience, and there's you know there's a certain you know factual basis of uh, well theoretical basis for for how to deal with toxic relationships, but applying these theories in practice is an entirely different thing, and just as you said. Every human being is different, and how to apply the theoretical knowledge to the individual and unique individual person, um, you know, the, the uniqueness of it, um, that's the challenge, and that's what makes it interesting, um, and that's what I enjoy doing as a coach, because, you know, my belief is, is that there are no secrets, right? We all basically somewhere deep inside of us already know what it is we ought to be doing. The problem is then actually doing it and organizing it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> organizing is, can be really hard. But um, I, I, as I understood you, um, you're going to get your, 
you just finished your bachelor's, you're going to be getting a master's soon. It's, it's a different process at the University of Kiel, you told me. I believe you're going to get your master's after only one further year of study at the yeah. University of Kiel. But then getting a therapist's license would require another four to five years beyond that, and you'd have to pay for it yourself. Um, so talk a little bit about that. How do you see your future? Yeah, that's actually part of the problem why I'm still concerned about um, becoming a therapist or not. Because as you said, you, you have to keep on learning for four years and you have to, um, I mean, you all already do therapy, but you don't really get paid for it. You get paid, but not a lot. And you also have to pay um, the instructors and everybody. So at the end, it's not that much of a wage. And um, so that's why I'm still thinking about becoming a therapist or not. It's also, I'm not sure if if I became a therapist at one point, if it really would fit my um, strengths. Well, I, I, I picture myself as somebody who can be empathetic, but I also have some other strengths and um, and and skills that wouldn't really um, come to play when I would become a therapist. For example, the whole music thing and the whole um, being in front of people and being confident and telling a story or it sounds to me actually like you might you might you, you might um uh, be you know just gut reaction you might be uh, looking at a teaching position um because that's something where you are in fact in some ways a kind of performer and uh, you're in front of people and you do have stage presence um I imagine that um, you know that would work very well for you. Well, I actually had um, the opportunity to do some sort of teaching um, in some facility for people who are new in Germany and uh, try to get a job, and there I could um, probably tell them a little bit about psychology, so just like the very basics. And maybe I'll do it. I don't have a lot of time right now, but... Um, Maybe you are right. I also heard from a friend who's um, working at the police that they are looking for psychologists who can teach um, future cops um, something about psychology, which is which seem, seems to be a, a good paid job. And maybe, as you said, this is something I can um, use to combine different um, abilities I have. So yeah, maybe I'll, I'll do something like that. And I also enjoyed uh, doing... Um, presentations in front of my um, fellow students and to be creative and to uh, try to um, inspire them into the, th the topic I chose. Um, so yeah, may maybe you're right. It's funny, um, I actually have somebody, um, a law professor, who is currently looking in the possibility that I might uh, um, work as a guest lecturer at, the, at a police academy in North Rhine-Westphalia. Um, specifically about, you know, the, the dangers of confirmation bias and wrongful convictions and um, how to maintain an investigative mindset, even though you might have somebody in front of you who seems guilty as hell, um, but in fact might not be. And uh, so possibly we could become colleagues, Dominic. <laughs> <laughs> It seems unlikely, but um, hey... Um, you said that you um, are interested in the intersection of music and psychology um, because, of course, you know, your real passion is as a singer and as a musician. And, you know, you're 
quite well known here in Germany um, as a singer and musician. Um, what kind of possibilities do you see there for yourself? Uh, where, where, where would you be working? What kind of job would you be doing? Um, would you be working for Spotify? No. <laughs> or, uh, unfortunately, I don't know, not. You know? No. Well, I think um, that's part of the problem. I think um, mus mus music psychology is interesting, but it's if, if you really want to um, find out about something, you have to go to the very basics. So it's um, not sitting in a room and playing guitar and uh, thinking about how this makes you feel. It's more about um, yeah, analyzing how we hear and which tones we do hear and which ones we don't. So um, at the end, if you really break it down and if you want to make a living out of it, you have to go into um, science and then you have to face the very basic questions and you have to make experience, uh, experiments And I really don't enjoy making experiments. That's what's what what I'm experiencing right now because I have to do my thesis where we have to do experiments, and I don't like it. So that's probably <laughs> the only field you could go in for music psychology, um, or at least the field that I would know right now. And therefore, that's not going to be um, something that I want to turn in. Then I just stay with music and just uh, performing live music um, instead of. Uh, combining it with psychology. Um, it was interesting to me um, when I was in prison, of course, and, you know, had all this time to read, um, uh, you know, one of the things naturally that I ran across was the Stanford prison experiment. Yeah. Uh, which I think you've, we discussed uh, in privately uh, once um, this, this really interesting experiment that was performed, I believe it was in the 1970s at Stanford University on the West Coast of the United States, where Uh, university students were randomly assigned the roles of guards and prisoners. And very quickly, um, the students kind of assumed these roles and totally lost their personalities to these roles simply because they had been randomly given a part to play. And it has to do with power relationships and how we live up to expectations and labels and how that then shapes our behavior. And perfectly normal students who had been assigned the roles of guards then ended up abusing other students who had been assigned the roles of prisoners. And these prisoners then actually acted, even though they were completely normal students, they acted subserviently and obediently because they had assumed the role of being prisoners and others acted rebelliously. So, it, you know, I always found that really that sort of experiment really, really fascinating. Um, um, uh, uh, but I guess that's not the kind of experiment that you'd be doing with music and psychology. No, but to be honest, I think uh, these experiments, these famous old experiments are very, um, very interesting. And they are probably the reason why I started uh, turning to psychology. Um, but music actually... I don't think it's such an interesting field in psychology. It's more of a uh, interesting field to just do it because that's what music is all about. Just grab an instrument and just play whatever you like and just feel and not so much much about statistics and um, yeah, science. Because I think once you start to integrate science into music, it kind of gets boring. So um, 
Yeah, that's the reason why I won't do it. But as you said, um, what, what I was wondering, do you think if you were a guard, so you experienced your whole life in this role of a prisoner, like in the experiment, do you think as a guard you would have become a different person? And w would you have acted differently in prison? Um, well, in the United States, the role of a correctional officer, at least in Virginia, is very, very, very different from that in Germany, um, where we live now, the two of us, right? Um, in Virginia, I believe the entire education of a correctional officer takes six weeks, if I, if I remember correctly. And in Germany, it's a three-year course that it, you, you basically have to earn a bachelor's degree, more or less, right, uh, to become a correctional officer. And so it's, it's a totally different set of people who applies for the job And um, I actually was as a speaker at a conference here in Germany, um, a trade conference uh, for prison technology. Um, and they hired me as a speaker to talk about how I uh, observed other prisoners outwitting the technical, technological safety devices in American prisons. Um, which, they, you know, I had some cool stories about, you know, what we did in prison as prisoners to outwit the locks and the cameras and all the other stuff. So some of the people who attended that conference were actual German correctional officers. And um, I got to talk to them and it was really, really interesting for me to listen to them and hear how different German prisons are from American prisons and how much, they're, how much more they're focused on rehabilitation and how higher the staffing levels are. In the last prison that I was in, for a lot of the time, we had something like only three or four officers for 256 prisoners, right? And in Germany, that's completely unthinkable, right? Um, their staff ratios are much, much, much higher, right? Um, I would expect in Germany, they might have 30 to 40 officers for that number of prisoners. Um, and of course, German prisons are very much smaller. And um, uh, I was speaking with one correctional officer at this conference who was the uh, the head of the tactical intervention unit, right? Which in the United States, these are really big, beefy guys with sticks and tear gas who beat you down and then drag you to the punishment block, right? The, called the hole, right? And The same job in a German prison is entirely different, right? They try to subdue in, inmates who have like a mental health breakdown or something. They, they try to subdue them and then they talk to them gently. And he told me how this goes to psychology because you're, you know, you're a psychology student. It's so interesting to me. I couldn't believe, you know, that he, you know, part of his job was basically getting somebody down on the floor, sitting on his back and then talking to him gently to calm him down. This was so unthinkable mm -hmm. for me as a comparison to American prisons where the same job, you know, tactical unit officer, the only thing they use is violence, right? And there's usually blood involved, right? Because they really, they really mess prisoners up. I saw incidents in prison in Virginia where people were really badly hurt by tactical intervention staff, right? Um, uh, um, so... You know, I, ca I can't really speak to that. How would I be as an officer? Because it depends whether you're talking about a German 
prison officer or somebody in Virginia who's got very little training, is very badly paid, and uses violence, <laughs> um, or a German officer who has got extensive training, and then this guy had additional training and psychological techniques to calm people down and stuff like that. Um, it's, you know, it's, it, these are, you can't really compare the two. Um, just like you can't really compare American prisons, at least the pr American prisons that I experienced, with German prisons. Um, I, I really, I can't really connect the two experiences. I've never been inside a German prison, but like I said, I've talked to people who've been there. I talked to some prisoners who were there as well. And, you know, some bad stuff happens in German prisons, but nothing like the scale or intensity as an American prison. And I, I, I can't really, yeah, I can't compare the two. And I, I don't know where I would find myself on that spectrum. Um, I would hope, um, or I would like, let me rephrase that. I would like to be given the opportunity to work with prisoners here in Germany. I would like to do that. Um, but I don't think I'm going to get that opportunity because of course I'm seen as a controversial person in here in Germany and, uh, somebody would be afraid of, you know, I don't know, being criticized if he hired me, but that's, that's something I would like to do. Um, well, I, but, you know, we can't always get what we want. And this is not something I'm going to, I'm expecting to get. That actually surprises me because I think you, you're probably really somebody who can give them something, um, from value because I've, I'm, I'm not sure I haven't been to a prison as well. I, I would be interested in doing so, um, especially like in Germany and also in America. But after all the stories you told me, probably I'd rather visit a German prison. Um, but I feel like meeting somebody who, yeah, who, who, who's now outside and who has managed to um, get out of this really stuck situation um, could be something that's very important for some prisoners. And it's, um, it's a shame that you are not able to do it because of the, um, yeah, because of the public, um, yes. debate about it's, your it's, person. but that's a problem in German society. Um, and, uh, it's not going to change, you know, I, I, it is, it is my belief as well that, um, you know, it, I could really help people there. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, instead of doing that, I'm doing coaching. And it, the same principle applies in a, in a different sort of way uh, in, in the coaching that I do. Um, you know, people come to me who are in difficult life situations um, who need to get the feeling that the person sitting across from them understands them because he, meaning me, um, has also suffered and therefore can put themselves, meaning me, into their shoes, right? And that's exactly what I would be doing with If I were to be allowed to work with prisoners, that's what I'd be doing with prisoners. I used to be a prisoner. I know the hopelessness. I know the anger. I know the frustration. I know the fear, right? And so I could come from that perspective and show them that there is hope because I made it. I made it. And if I can make it after 33 years in an American prison, then they can make it after, I don't know, in Germany, seven years is a very long sentence, right? So that you can make it after seven years in a German prison, there's still hope for you, right? Mm. And there are certain skills you can learn to, 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 to survive and get back out and build a life. But um, again, I don't think they're going to be allowed to do that here in Germany. Um, 
Um, possibly I could do it in the United States remotely, digitally. I cannot visit yeah. the United States, um, but I could possibly do it remotely um, um, if somebody over there is interested. In the meantime, here in Germany, I can do these coachings with uh, private clients, um, but unfortunately not prisoners. As far as your idea to go visiting in prison, I think that's, you know, for somebody studying psychology, I'm kind of surprised they haven't done that with you yet. Um, I know that they've sent you to therapeutic facilities. Mm. Um, and a lot of the people who in the United States are in prison in Germany are actually sent to hospitals, forensic units and hospitals. And, um, you know, when I was at in, in, in Virginia, um, depending on what statistics you look at, between 25% and I think 50% of prisoners, depending on the statistics, um, suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder. Um, because there's, you know, the legal system does not take mental health into account, so they just send them to prison where they get no therapy. The most they can hope for is, you know, psychotropic medication. And not everybody gets that. So a lot of people wander around in a daze. But here in Germany, the same kinds of offenders would be sent to forensic hospitals instead of to prison. But my guess is that nevertheless, even in German prisons, you have a lot of people with mental health problems still, despite that. And so it's a place that would seem to me to actually need psychologists on staff and so um, I'm kind of surprised that, you know, you, you, your university hasn't sort of included that in their sort of rota of uh, internship programs. Do you know other students who've gone into uh, prisons here in Germany to, 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 to uh, at least take, take a look? Actually, no. Um, I don't know somebody who went into some kind of prison. Um, one of my professors... Um, who is teaching us um, sexual medicine. Um, he used to be um, in a lot of prisons and he used to work with prisoners and people who got there because of some kind of um, assault or sexual crime in different ways. Um, and he told us about it. And I also thought about going into this direction because obviously I... Um, in, I am interested in crime and in forensic and in finding out what leads people to doing something like that and how to get them back on track. Um, and it's also a field where there are a lot of jobs, um, whether it's working with prisoners and um, also caring about their problems, not just people who are not in prison. So at, at one part you can work inside of a prison with prisoners, but you can also work um, at the court and to make uh, pre-trial evaluations about prisoners and to determine whether they might have a psychological illness or not and how this may affect um, the sentence they get. It's really interesting because that's a huge difference between the German legal system and the European legal system in generally and the United States. Um, in the United States, in most U.S. states, not all, but in most U.S. states, um, the psychological state and the, or the possible mental health status um, of defendants cannot really come into play in court other than through an insanity defense. And insanity defenses are extremely rare. 
that they're just successful. But uh, psychological illnesses, your run-of-the-mill psychological illnesses, really don't play a role in U.S. criminal trials. And that all came about in the early 1980s um, because of the attempted assassination of President Ronald Reagan back then uh, through John Hinckley. Um, he was the guy who shot uh, but not did not kill President Reagan. After that incident, um, most U.S. states changed their laws to remove the possibility that the mental health status of the defendant could be taken into account as a mitigating circumstance. And um, that led to people with serious mental health problems just being sent to a regular prison because there was no longer any legal way to really bring that up in court. Um, because John Hinckley Jr. was successful in bringing his mental health status uh, in as a defense. And uh, people were so outraged by that that they changed the laws. But here in Germany, that, that situation did not take place and in the rest of Europe. And here it is completely possible for many, many defendants who come to court um, to get these court-ordered evaluations like you were just talking about, and then not to get sent to prison at all, but to get sent to hospitals. Um, and that's a huge difference between the legal systems and the way um, defendants are treated and the way mental health issues are treated in criminal cases. Um, you know, there's pros and cons to all of this, but um, I, I tend to think that the German system is actually much better in this regard. And um, it's, it's interesting that you're considering working in this field, doing court-ordered evaluations for defendants to see to what extent mental health actually played a role in their crime. Mm. Have you ever, in your prison time, met somebody who obviously had a very heavy mental illness and who really would have needed help but didn't get it because he was in prison? Oh, I, I would... My, my first reaction is to say hundreds, mm. right? Um, and that's probably not an exaggeration. In, in especially, you know, the last 25 years out of my 33 years, um, at every lunch, at every breakfast and every, not so much lunch, but at every breakfast and every dinner, there would be huge lines. They had special pill windows outside the medical departments where people could go, prisoners would go, they'd be, have to go there at breakfast and at dinner to pick up the psychotropic medications. And I would say, yeah, I would say 25 to 30%, you know, a quarter to a third of the prisoners in every prison where I was at were taking psychotropic medications. I'm talking about in a, in a, in a, in a prison like Buckingham Correctional Center, the last prison I was in, we had 1,100 inmates. I would say every day, 250 to 300 of those prisoners were getting psychotropic medications, right? And that was just the way it was. And many more probably needed it, but weren't getting them. And I had cellmates that were just extremely ill and mental health-wise and were not getting help. I'm thinking about one particular character called Nate Livakari, who was in the U.S. Navy and had a very, very responsible, important job in the U.S. Navy as an enlisted man, but he, he was, they really trusted him. He was actually assigned to follow an admiral around with a suitcase that contained the atomic codes, huh. right, that he needed to fire 
atomic weapons, right? That's how important he was. They trusted him with that suitcase, right? And um, because it's not just the president who has one of these suitcases, the people who then actually launch the weapons have similar suitcases, right? And that's how much they trusted this guy. But they, they, he had to take a medication called mellifluquin, which is an anti-malarial drug, um, which um, service members were required to take. And this medication, in a certain percentage of people, has side effects that lead to extremely violent behavior, right? And this is a known fact, but it's an effective anti-malaria drug, so they're required to take it anyway. And Nate Livakari took this medication and then committed a horrendous crime, right? It's so horrible that I'm not going to describe it here, but it was really a terrible crime. And until this point, he was a completely law-abiding citizen and a very trusted member of the U.S. Navy. And then, it, then he took this medication, and not long afterwards, he committed this horrible crime, went to prison, and he was my cellmate for over a year. And he was so incredibly crazy, it's hard to describe. He was constantly teetering on the edge of extreme freak-out, violent behavior never actually happened. At the same time, he was so afraid. You know, I'm not, I was one of the, especially in the last few years in prison, last 10, 15, 20 years, I was one of the, you know, one of the leaders there, right, among the inmates. Not, not maybe leaders, but respected people. And, but I mean, I'm not very big, right? I'm not mm -hmm. physically very large. Nate Levakari was, you know, twice as big as me. And he was a big, big guy, right? But he was afraid to go outside to the rec yard, right, without me. Mm -hmm. That's how severe his anxiety was. He needed me, a guy who was maybe half as large as he was, to escort him to the rec yard and back. That's how scared he was. And that tells you about how severe his mental health status was. This was a guy who had really, really deep problems, and he was getting no help at all, you know. Um, yeah, no help at all. Are you going to and talk about him in uh, your other podcast, Sympathy for the yes. Devil? Absolutely. I'm, he's, he's one of the upcoming cases. Um, I'm, you know, and I do have another podcast for which you uh, made a great jingle. Um, mm -hmm. That's right. Um, but um, that's right. I, that's a podcast where I talk about the prisoners I served time with, and a lot of them were my cellmates. And this is one of the cases I will be talking about in the future. Um, because... You know, he's completely, he, he committed the crime. He is completely guilty, right, mm. of committing the acts, right? And they were horrible, right? But um, there was no chance for him to bring any of the psychological factors into court as a defense. So he was simply convicted on the acts themselves without the mental health status, playing any kind of role. So he's doing, I think, multiple life sentences and he's going to die in prison. He's never getting out. And that's one way for society to solve that problem. And for me, it's interesting that it's so different in Germany because in Germany, you know, the medication that he took that then led to the psychotic break and his whole mental health status would have been evaluated over months before his trial. And that would have probably been the main focus of the trial would have been to try to determine to what extent was he responsible for his acts and to what extent was he not responsible because it's always a mixture, right? 
and then to sentence him appropriately. And he would have, in Germany, I believe, never gone to prison. Because this guy, you know, I spent a year as a cellmate. He does not belong to prison. He definitely belongs in a hospital because he is a very, very ill person. Not to say he's not dangerous, right? Um, of all my cellmates, he's probably the guy who scared me the most. And I had some, some really good cellmates, but I also had some pretty bad cellmates. But he, my God, OMG, this was one crazy M effort. <laughs> and but he was he was not an exception. There were lots of people like him in prison over there. Like I said, somewhere between twenty five and fifty percent really severe mental health problems. And those are statistics from the U.S. Department of Justice, the mm. the federal uh, justice ministry in Germany in, in the United States. You know, it's and but nobody cares because you know they did horrible things, and so the easiest thing is just to lock them away. Have Have you ever thought about yourself um, whether you would Probably, or maybe you were at some point. Um, you you were developing a mental illness, like just probably depression or something, because of this horrible sentence you got and this um, this future that just got swept away. Um, I had times during uh, my incarceration in which I was very sad, but. I never reached a stage that there was, an, on the night of the verdict against me, right, which was a wrongful conviction, mm. June 21st, 1990, I tried to kill myself, yeah. right? But it was pretty half-hearted. And, you know, I put a plastic bag on my head and then I ripped it open, right? And then I'd figured out I'm not going to get out of this so easy, I got to fight, right? But it was a pretty half-hearted attempt at suicide and it was the only one, right? Um... And apart from that, there were times I was very sad, but I, it was, I was never so depressed that I could not do something. I always remained active. And that's why I'm reluctant to say that I really was suffering from depression because I associate, and I'm not, you know, I'm not educated in this field. This is just things I've read about, but I associate depression with um, hopelessness and the inability to act to perform, to do anything, right? And I never got there, right? I, um, I was always able to, I kept very busy in prison fighting. And there was one period in the summer of 2009, from July to September 2009. I remember it specifically because those were four months where I really, I think I was, I was suffering from depression during those four months because I really felt there was nothing I could do during those four months. And... Yeah, I really experienced some genuine hopelessness. But those four months were different from all my other de decades in prison. And that's why I remember those four months so clearly. I think apart from those four months, no, I, I don't think I was really suffering from a clinical depression. I was sad, I was frustrated, but I don't think I was suffering from a, from a depression. Um, And I say that because I, I know some people and I've gotten to know some people since my release here in Germany who actually have suffered from genuine depression and it's a different thing. And I know I was not like that. Mm. And, and so, yeah, I, no, I, I don't think I had anything like that. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm happy for you that this didn't happen because I really can imagine that something like this taking place in your life really 
um, shuts down your whole uh, resilience and your whole uh, your whole defenses against mental illnesses. Um, yeah, but I think that's probably a topic you don't discuss a lot when it comes to this prison context. It's always about guilt and it's about how long do we gotta um, put them away. And I mean, of course, you need to have a um, punishment, but the American way to just um, lock them up and um, send them away until they die, I don't really understand it from a German perspective. Right, but it, it comes out, you have to, I agree with that, right? Um, but you have to understand what the origins are of the criminal justice system in the United States. Um, and, 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 you know, it's something I've written about in my books and my articles while I was in prison. And um, there are now some uh, documentaries about this sort of thing as well. Um, since my release, actually, uh, some, of the, some of the ones. Um, the American criminal justice system, especially in the South, uh, comes out of the so-called Reconstruction era, um, which is after the U.S. Civil War. And um, for those listeners who are not Americans, right, there was a civil war in the United States from 1861 to 1865. Um, it was about uh, the... the rights of states to decide how they govern themselves. And one of the primary things they were interested in was the right to keep slaves. Um, and of course, the southern states were the slave states, and they lost the war. And right at the end of the war, the northern states, the federal government, which ended up winning, passed the 14th Amendment, which has a really interesting clause in it. It, it says that slavery is abolished, except for people who are legally convicted of a crime, okay? So many people believe, and I, I, my, my intuition is, is that this is correct, that this was a kind of an olive branch from the northern states to the southern states, right? Yeah, you've lost the war and you cannot have slaves anymore, okay? And so that's hard, right? Because, you know, losing a war is, you know, bad. <laughs> um, but, but you still have an opportunity to keep slaves. You just have to do it differently because it says slavery is abolished except for people convicted of a crime, right? So all the Southern states had to do is they had to readjust their court systems, their legal systems to sentence people as criminals, and then they could be slaves again. And that there's actually, there's a case from Virginia, a legal case from the Virginia Supreme Court. And I know this because I'm from Virginia. I spent 30 years there. It's called Ruffin versus Commonwealth. And that case was after the Civil War. And it said that prisoners are slaves of the state. And all of this still exists to this day. A couple of years ago, a few years ago, a bunch of Democratic senators tried to change this, to remove this out of the 14th Amendment. And a bunch of Republican senators stopped that. They wanted to keep it in there. Right now, constitutional law in the United States is still that prisoners are slaves of the state. And after, in the Reconstruction era, after the Civil War, the Southern states passed laws that made it easy to put African Americans, the freed slaves, into prison, which made them slaves again even though they'd lost the war, 
the southern states. They had they had laws like they're called Jim Crow laws that you could not walk along a road without your employer's permission, right? So basically, any deputy could just pick up a black person on the side of the road and ask him, do you have permission to walk along the side of the road from your employer? And if the employer said, no, he did not have permission to leave his place of employment, that guy was convicted of a crime. And he was once again a slave, right? And these Jim Crow laws, they existed into the 1960s, and then they were ab abolished, but the system around which they're built continued to exist. And a few years ago, a woman called Michelle Alexander wrote a really good book called The New Jim Crow, which explained all of this. Um, uh, uh, and that book was a big hit in the United States. But it explains why the legal system, especially in the southern states in the United States, is not interested in rehabilitation and it's not interested in seeing prisoners as human beings. It's because the legal system grew out of this movement to bring back, to bring back slavery through the back door by taking the released slaves, making them criminals, which then made them slaves of the state. And once you understand that history, the rest of it really makes sense. Why would you try to rehabilitate a slave, right? Mm. Why would you try to give therapy to a slave? There's no reason to do that. They're slaves, right? And that is still the constitutional law in the United States to this day. And people don't know that, but that's, now you do. <laughs> now yeah, you do. That's crazy. <laughs> so actually you were a slave <laughs> for yes. some time. Yes. And the, um, the funny thing is in the last few years in prison, right? We, the prisoners, you know, they're, they're prisoners. You know, people think prisoners are all dumb and uneducated. Not true. There's a bunch of people in prison who have bettered themselves, who have read a bunch of books and have learned something, right? And, you know, <clears throat> prisoners who had done something to further their own education, because, you know, the state really didn't provide much education. We went around the rec yard calling each other 14th Amendment slaves. <laughs> you know, we prisoners, we understood, right? Yeah. You know? You said that you read a lot of books back in prison and a lot of books about psychology. And now that we are coming to an end of this episode, I was wondering, is there anything that really in these 33 years really inspired you and you would really recommend people to read? Yes. Um, the book that really changed my life in a lot of ways was uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl was a Viennese psychiatrist who spent three years in the concentration camps and afterwards, thank God, he, he, he emerged alive and he wrote this wonderful book and then founded this concept of logotherapy. And it's based on the idea that you need a logos, Greek word meaning meaning, right? A, sen a goal, yeah? Life has to have meaning. It has to have sense. It has to have a reason. It has to have a goal. And Once you determine what your goal is, you can survive almost anything. And for me, the goal was always to prove my innocence. And I did not reach that goal. They only released me into freedom without giving me justice, without allowing me to prove my innocence. But that's what gave me the strength to keep fighting for 33 years. And I believe that's probably the key for the coachings I do 
when I work as a coach with clients here in Germany, is to determine what is the meaning of your life? What is the logos, right? What, why is the reason you're on the planet? And once you figure that out, a lot of other things become much clearer and fall into line and you can structure your life and you can keep going and you can overcome hardships. And that book, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, you know, it's, it's one of the few books I've read several times. It's very short, <laughs> so it wasn't that hard. But I think I read it four or five times over the decades. It's a really, really wonderful book. And um, I, would, I would strongly recommend that to anybody who's trying to find a way forward. And um, yeah, it's, 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 it's what helped me. And the ideas in that book are what I use in my uh, own coaching with clients here in Germany or now online with some American clients. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thanks for having me today. And thanks for this podcast episode. I think um, we're going to see each other in two weeks. Sounds like fun. I thank you for giving me this opportunity to yes. chat with you again. And in a couple of weeks, Americans will have Thanksgiving behind them. Ah. And here in Germany, um, we're already starting to celebrate Christmas. There are Christmas markets going up in your town of Kiel, my town of Hamburg. And uh, it's um, we're all moving into the holiday season. OMG. <laughs> uh, maybe we can do our next... Uh, podcast about that <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe about uh, christmas, christmas in prison in what prison. was that like what was christmas in prison like that's actually uh, interesting maybe we'll come back to that <laughs> a lot of fights a lot of suicides oh, no. lots of home-brewed alcohol oh no <laughs> sounds just like a normal prison here in, uh, a normal but more but more so <laughs> just like normal prison but more so yeah because <laughs> everybody's depressed all right we'll see Thanks. each other in a couple of weeks Bye. thank you Bye.